0: Let's pray once again and ask for the Word to help us as we consider Judges 10 and 11 together. Our Father, we thank you for the promise of your Spirit. We thank you that both Father and Son have sent the Spirit of God to us, causing your Word to be written down, but not stopping there. You've promised your Spirit to help us to understand your Word, to believe it, to be convinced of its truthfulness, of its power, of its sufficiency, of its certainty. We pray, even as we consider together difficult texts through the book of Judges, that you would grant to us the grace to, to see our Lord Jesus Christ in these pages, to turn to him in renewed faith and repentance. Grant to your people Uh, the ability to hear the very voice of Christ as your word is proclaimed. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If you turn with me to the book of Judges once again, our text this morning will be from chapter 10, verse 6, down through chapter 11 and verse 11. We're kind of straddling here. We're we're introduced today to this character that we'll spend more time with next week by the name of Jephthah. Uh, Last week, we looked at the first part of chapter 10 and the end of chapter 12, sort of straddling this narrative and looking at those five other so-called minor judges that are recorded for us here. The title of today's sermon is Lost Sons, and I hope that 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 title will, will make sense as we work through this. At this particular point in, in, in the book of, of Judges, we've seen this cycle go on and on and on with Israel in, in her rebellion, and then God's selling his people into the oppression of a particular enemy, and then seeing this, this repeated pattern of them crying out to the Lord for the deliverance, and then him raising up a judge, a, a deliverer, a savior for them. But if the nation of Israel, if you thought about the nation of Israel as a patient in the hospital, by the time we get to this stage, the doctors monitoring the patient would, would tell them now it's time to bring the family in. We don't have long. The, the, the patient is acutely critical. And we've already seen, again, this, this cycle here of God's people crying out to him to, to relieve, to crying out to God to relieve them of their present distress and oppression and suffering. So this isn't their first time to be in this imaginary hospital. But this time, the cancer of their idolatry has so metastasized, so spread, because of their willful and repeated rebellion, that even the Lord says to them, I won't help you any longer. Go and see what those other gods can do for you, the ones that you've whored after. So as we read the the text today, Judges 10, verses 6, through the end of that chapter and then picking up through verse 11 of chapter 10, understand there's this sort of interplay between two sons in the text. One, Israel, is pictured in the sense as a son who's wayward, rebellious, and disinherited. And then at the same time, we're introduced to Jephthah. Another wayward son who's despised and rejected and seeking to have his own inheritance restored. So, you have this sort of compare and contrast going on between Yahweh's lost son and Gilead's lost son. So, that's really the two, the, the, the split in the sermon today, the two main headings, if you will, is Yahweh's lost son and Gilead's lost son. So, let's read together the Word of God, beginning in chapter. 10, verse 6. Hear hear the word of God together. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians, and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Mayanites, oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand? Yet you have forsaken me, and served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. Go. And cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the, name, in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Midspah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel, and when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. May the Lord give his blessing to the reading of his word. Notice this this first son we see in chapter 10. The first lost son is Yahweh's lost son. Israel is lost in in more ways than one. Notice, first of all, the anger that the Lord has. Again, we've seen this narrative play out, this cycle play out before, but there are some distinctions this time. And And it seems clear to me that the narrator is, in fact, wanting to show us that the canonization of Israel has reached its zenith, has reached its climax. And what we're going to see as the book of, of the remainder of the book unfolds the, are the tragic consequences of this full canonization taking place. Idolatry has taken root in the hearts of his people. It is not merely a passing fancy any longer. It is not merely that they dabbled in, in this idolatry. They've immersed themselves in it. And the text shows us this in several ways. Notice, first of all, in, in verse 6, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Notice here in this verse that there are six different gods or groups of gods or nations whose gods they serve, and it's significant. And you know this, in, in the Hebrew mind, the number of seven is, is always significant. And, and it's pointing here not to just a, a, an absolute finite list of gods, it's showing the completeness and the totality of how much they have given themselves over to idolatry. Now what we've seen Thus far in this cycle is that they, they tended to worship, the, the kind of dabble in this Baal worship as a supplement to their continuing worship of Yahweh. But we're told here they forsook the Lord. They did not serve him. So here this, this sort of pantheon of seven different gods represents the totality, the comprehensive nature of their idolatry. This is the worst of Israel's lostness up to this point. They've given themselves over. They're they're no longer even pretending to be Yahweh worshipers any longer. And the Lord responds justly. Verse 7, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them. Now here's another point of departure from the normal cycle. Notice the Lord's anger is, is roused, justly so, and he sells them over to an enemy. That's not new. What is new is now there are two enemies. There are two different nations to whom God delivers them. Again, showing to us that the heat is being deliberately raised by God upon his people. God, his, his anger was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. So in other words, if you look at this geographically, he's got them squeezed from both sides. Now the Ammonites, if you, some of you have, probably maps in the back of your Bible, if you look at the one about that has the 12 tribes in it, you'll notice that on the the east side, the right-hand side of the Jordan, which runs north to south, are the tribes of, of Gad. And then you, just to the east of that, you'll see Ammon. Well, the Ammonites had begun to attack the people on the east side of the Jordan, but the provocations continue to get worse and worse and worse. They crossed over, And we're now attacking even the people in Benjamin, Judah, and Ephraim on the western western side of the Jordan into the, the, the promised land proper. This is, there's a warning here. As we see them abandon their, entirely their worship of God, there's a warning to us. This is where idolatry always, always, always goes. If it is not repented of, If you do not forsake your idols, you will soon forsake the true God. There's a spiritual law at work here. If we give ourselves over without repentance to the idols of our heart, those idols then shape us. They change us. And we will find ourselves where we never thought we would go, forsaking God himself. And you can sit here this morning on a Sunday morning and think, well, I would never do that. I would never forsake my God. Saints, don't think too highly of yourselves. Do not, do not neglect what the Bible warns us about, this, the presence of idolatry, when we do not turn from it and seek the Lord's face. There may become a time, either because we were, were found to be false converts or because God in his wisdom and his mercy will deliver us over to cause us to feel the weight and the misery of that idolatry and then turn back to him in true repentance. But we find here that that a universal phenomenon, idolatry angers God, and justly so. Idolatry angers God. When we place anything in place of, in front of, inside of, or above God, we justly deserve his wrath. This is God's justice on display. Now, it's interesting, the word here, Regarding the Philistines and the Ammonites, they were handed over to the Ammonites, and look at verse 8, they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel. This word crushed is a a dramatic word. It's a a heavy word, pun intended, in in the Hebrew language. It's only used one other time in the Old Testament, and it's used in Exodus 15, when Moses breaks forth in song to celebrate the victory that God has given the people of Israel over Egypt. And it is said of the Egyptians that God crushed them. So here the narrator wants us to see the script has now been flipped, where once God was on the side of Israel, delivering them and crushing their enemies, he is now giving them into the hands of enemies who are actually crushing them. So it's a dramatic turn of events. God makes it plain that their idolatry deserved the very same wrath that Egypt got. So here is Israel The apple of his eye, his own people, the people called out for his own possession, he has now said, you're worthy of the same wrath that I placed upon Egypt. But this section provides another warning for us as well. A warning against dabbling in sin and idolatry. And this this crucial passage demonstrates that not only does does idolatry anger God, but idolatry changes us. Idolatry changes us. It it, it reshapes us. It changes the way we think. And particularly, idolatry changes how and what we think about God Himself. And we see this in the response of God's people. Look at verse 10 in chapter 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baal. So this is the first time we see even a any kind of hint of repentance. Now, we're going to find, based on the Lord's response, is that it doesn't appear to be genuine repentance, based on how the Lord responds here. They cried out to the Lord, "'We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God "'and have served the Baals. "'And the Lord said to the people of Israel, "'Did I not save you from the Egyptians?' And from the Amorites, the Ammonites, and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Now, I pointed out at the beginning that there was a list of seven gods that Israel served, and that sense of completion and perfection, we see a list of seven once again. God names seven distinct peoples from whom he has delivered Israel. Now, God's not saying this is the only seven but again, the is wanting us to see very clearly the perfection of God's salvation, the, the completeness, the totality of God's deliverance and, and rescue and redemption of his people, and yet they continue in their sin. God is showing them, think back, people, how many times have I saved you? And not just the number of times, but the full measure of the salvation that I've given to you, and yet you've continued to go after the idols of your neighbors. Israel had given themselves to seven groups of other gods, and in doing so, they had not only forsaken Yahweh, but they'd forgotten something very fundamental about the character of Yahweh. Something basic, something that that true religious sanity wouldn't allow them to forget. But they were not religiously sane they were insane. They, were, they, were, they had given themselves over to such a degree to their idols that their minds had become warped. Their understanding had been darkened with respect to who God is and how God acts toward his people. Yahweh is not like other gods, and yet that's how they come to Yahweh. They begin, the way that they come to Yahweh is they come to him as if he were a pagan god and that he could be manipulated, bribed, and convinced to do their will. That's how they treat God. They forget that that Yahweh is not like other gods. He sees, he hears, he knows all, he acts, and he also demands complete monogamous devotion of his bride. But Israel, Israel now thinks that all she has to do is offer some measure of repentance, some some show of repentance, and Yahweh will be eager and willing to, to bring her back she now thinks that her true husband, Yahweh, can be manipulated just as easily as any of her other lovers. And the people of Israel had perverted their view of their God by thinking he could be manipulated, that his will could be twisted and conformed to theirs just like any of the other gods that they serve. Del Ralph Davis makes this observation. He says, there's a difference between a prodigal who comes to his senses and returns home and a whore who pleads for her husband's security only until she finds someone else to take her on. Sheer tragedy is when people become so accustomed to the mercy of God that they despise it, and especially in the act of seeking it. Christians must be aware of their tendency to make God safe. When we do so, we end up worshiping something other than the Holy One of Israel. See, idolatry had changed Their minds had changed their understanding about who God is. Their view of his character had been warped, had been contorted, because the reality is we become like what we worship. And when they had given themselves over to these idols, their minds began to be twisted. And they didn't see it the first day. They didn't even see it the second day. But drip by drip by drip, their minds are being eroded like the water that drips upon a rock. You can see evidence, and you, you can go to, to an old park somewhere, you can go to ancient ruins and see where water has, has hit upon concrete. And and it's carved out troughs and recesses. And, and we think though, nah, it wouldn't happen to me. I wouldn't be like that. And we delude ourselves, don't we? We fool ourselves. Their idolatry had perverted their very understanding of God in another crucial way. They, they lost sight of, of where their standing with God is derived from. They, they lost sight of the source of their good standing with God previously. They thought that their relationship with God, again, like their pagan gods, that it hinged upon their performance of certain religious duties, they forgot that their standing with God was based wholly, was based exclusively upon his divine favor, upon his unmerited grace, upon his exclusive divine love that was expressed to them in a covenant. First, with Abraham. And then, of course, renewed with Abraham and Isaac. But then beyond that, when it was reiterated at Sinai, and and adapted to fit not a family, but a nation. God reminds them here, in verse 11, seven times. He reminds them of his perfect deliverance to them. And they had forgotten. And God was intentional through his prophet, through Moses. God had preached to them immediately before they were to cross over the Jordan River and go into the Promised Land. That's what Deuteronomy is. is a series of sermons that Moses preaches. Deuteronomy meaning the second law. This is a sermonic rendering of the covenant at Sinai. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says something about himself to his people, something that he did not want them to forget, and yet because of their idolatry, they had forgotten the very thing that God said, this is what you have to hang on to. You can't forget this. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were in, more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you those who hate him by destroying him. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Not because those rules and statutes and commandments are what connect you to God, but because those are an expression of your belief, your faith that God, in fact, out of his gracious love has chosen you. It is God's action, it is God's love, it is God's work that unites a people to himself, not his people's work. And now we can see by this sort of interplay, this this show, frankly, that the people put on. Oh, God, we have sinned, we've worshipped the Baals, we've forsaken you, and God says, do you not remember the seven times, the perfect salvation, the perfect deliverance I've given to you? And the people say, oh, okay, well, we, we we're going to put away our foreign gods. We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. See, their demand upon God. You have to save us today. We need out of this misery. It's gotten to the point we can't bear it anymore. Otherwise, we would have continued worshiping the other gods. I mean, frankly, we, we were only deterred because of our level of misery. Not because of a true love. And Yahweh, of course, knows their hearts. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. There's a, there's a Hebrew idiom here. His literally means the Lord's soul became short with them. And there's, there's debate among the commentators. What does this actually mean? Is this, the ESV tends to take a, 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 a more contemporary interpretation That God has has become impatient. He's just done. You ever had that situation with one of your own kids? We've said this a hundred times. And you're continuing to do this. I'm done. You're going to have to face the consequences for your own actions here. And sometimes it is just and right for a parent to do that. To say, you're going to have to lie in the bed that you've made. You've been warned. You've been warned again. You've been warned here seven times I have delivered you. And yet you persist in that. You're going to have to accept those consequences. But there's also, kind of the older interpretation was that the Lord grieved for his people. That the Lord looked upon the suffering of his people, even suffering that was deserved. And out of his compassion, out of his love, out of his grace, he arranged for their deliverance. Now, perhaps you need this reminder this morning. If you're in Christ, it's because God's eternal love has been poured out upon you. It's not because of anything you ever did or could do. He didn't choose to love you because of anything worthy that he saw in you. He didn't choose to love you even based on anything that, that he might one day produce in you to make you lovable. God didn't think, well, I will love this one when I have sanctified them to a certain degree and they become lovable. Sometimes we think that way, don't we? That God will, one, one day, I'll deserve God's love. From eternity, God has placed his love upon his people. Unmerited, undeserved. In Christ Jesus, God has covenanted to save a people for his own possession. And the people of Israel, because of their idolatry, because of the drip, drip, drip of their own sin and rebellion, they have forgotten who God is. They have forgotten. It's kind of, why are we here? And they'd forgotten that that simple question or the answer to that simple question. You're here because God chose you. But because before you ever thought about deserving it, God lavished his grace upon you and delivered you unlike every other nation on the planet. God chose to put his covenant affections, his covenant love upon you. And the people of God are now treating God, Yahweh, as if he's just another one of their idols. If we can kind of spit shine things, clean things up, then we can manipulate God and convince him that we need to be rescued aren't we guilty of this? D- don't we think we can do the same? think that our favor with God is earned by the depth of our repentance and we think the other way if, if I'm not feeling God's gracious presence, it must be it must be because I just didn't I didn't repent hard enough I, I need I needed more tears I need, I needed a greater display of some kind. Well, that's a pagan way of thinking. And see, it is their idolatry, and it is our idolatry, frankly, that causes us to think this way. That's not the what we get from the Scriptures. What we get from the Scriptures as that the very cause of our repentance is the gracious, loving work of God within us. And we get this upside down and backwards, don't we? See, we think, even when we read the text... We think, oh, they repented, therefore God delivered them. See, we get cause and effect confused, don't we? It is God's gracious work that brings about true repentance. And it is our fleshly work that brings about a false repentance. What Paul referred to as a worldly sorrow that leads to death, juxtaposed, contrasted against a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. In the New Testament, we have a vivid illustration of this, a vivid illustration. Um, brother john mentioned in sunday school today with peter's restoration in john 21 here's peter denying the lord jesus three times he denied him and peter goes out and weeps bitterly but peter's weeping is a hopeful weeping and you juxtapose that you contrast that to judas judas also wept bitterly and then he went and hung himself judas is Weeping was a hopeless kind of weeping. It was a worldly sorrow. It led literally to his death. And you see that contrast. And perhaps we need to be reminded of this, that it is, it is God's covenant love that he poured upon you and expressed in the person and work of his own son that has brought you here today. It is not because of anything you have done. I want to illustrate this with a somewhat extended passage out of Pilgrim's Progress. Many of you, I know, read this and loved the story of John Bunyan's allegory of the Christian faith. And here we pick up with Christian in the interpreter's house. And it's one of the darkest scenes in all of Pilgrim's Progress. The interpreter takes Christian by the hand, and he leads him to a very dark room where sat a man in an iron cage. Now, the man to look on seemed very sad, he sat with his eyes looking down to the ground, his hands folded together, and he sighed as if he would break his heart. Then said, Christian, what means this? At which the interpreter bid him talk with the man. Now think about this, in light of what we're seeing here in Judges. Here's a lost son, here's Israel, gone off to all of her idols. In a sense, in the same place as this man in the iron cage, staring down at the floor. Listen to the exchange. Listen to the despair. Then Christian said to the man, what are you? And the man answered, I am what I was not once. What were you once? The man said, I was once a fair and flourishing professor, both in mine own eyes and also in the eyes of others. I once was, as I thought, fair for the celestial city and had then even joy at the thoughts that I should get there. Christian says, well, but what are you now? I am now a man of despair. I am shut up in this iron cage. I cannot get out. Oh, now I cannot. Christian, but how did you come to this condition? The man says, I left off to watch. I left off being sober. I laid the reins upon the neck of my lusts. I sinned against the light of the word and the goodness of God. I have grieved the spirit and he is gone. I tempted the devil, and he has come to me. I have provoked God to anger, and he has left me. I have so hardened my heart that I cannot repent. Then said Christian to the interpreter, but is there no hope for such a man as this? Ask him, said the interpreter. Then said Christian, is there no hope, but you must be kept in the iron cage of despair? And the man says, no, none at all. Christian says, but why? The son of the blessed is very pitiful. The man said, I have crucified him to myself afresh. I have despised his person. I have despised his righteousness. I have counted his blood an unholy thing. I have done despite to the spirit of grace. Therefore, I have shut myself out of all the promises. And there now remains to me nothing but threatenings, dreadful threatenings, fearful threatenings of certain judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour me as an adversary. Christian says, for what did you bring yourself into this condition? He answers, for the lusts, pleasures, and profits of this world and the enjoyment of which I did them promise myself much delight. But now every one of those things also bite me and gnaw me like a burning worm. Christian says, but can you not now repent and turn? man says, God has denied me repentance. His word gives me no encouragement to believe. Yea, himself has shut me up in this iron cage. Nor can all the men in the world let me out. Oh, eternity, eternity. How shall I grapple with the misery that I must meet with eternity? Then the interpreter says to Christian, let this man's misery be remembered by you and be an everlasting caution to you. Christian says, well said. Christian, this is fearful. God, help me to watch and be sober and to pray that I may shun the cause of this man's misery. Sir, is it not time for me to go on my way now? The interpreter says, Terry, till I show you one thing more, and you shall go on your way. These are frightening words, isn't it? I mean, it's vivid, and and Bunyan's genius shows through in the way that he he writes this. And, And students and commentators of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress have have debated this scene. What does it mean? What did did Bunyan intend here with this allegory? Is is Bunyan showing a picture here, according to Hebrews 6, where there is a, a, a sense of turning away, having tasted the goodness of God, and then turning away, never to be restored again? So this is a false convert who made a profession of faith. This is like Simon the magician in the book of Acts. He he had seen the promises of God. He had even been baptized. He professed faith. He was part of the community of faith. And then the the apostles came. They laid hands on on those Gentiles. They received the Spirit of God. And and Simon thought, aha, this could be a profitable enterprise. Can you give me? To to Peter, he says, can you give me this Holy Spirit that I can make much of this? And Peter, of course, says, may you and your silver perish together. You have no no inheritance here. So, is this a a false convert here in the Iron Cage? Or is this a man because of his idolatry, because by his own testimony, he's, he's chased after these other lusts? He's chased after these other things. And now his thinking has been so warped that he sits here in this cage of despair, wrongly thinking that there is no hope for me. I can't even repent. Now, where does does he get that in the Bible? It doesn't say that, does it? In fact, it's it's important for us. One of the reasons it's important for us to study the Old Testament is to keep us from having this imbalanced view to think, well, the New Testament is the God of grace. The Old Testament is the God of wrath and judgment. We see the God's grace on display right here in the mess of the book of Judges. We see God's gracious dealing with his people. And again, many of the, the Bunyan... Scholars and and commentators say that his likely purpose in the character was to warn Christian and to warn us of the danger of straying away from God and to see how idolatry perverts even what we think about God himself and what we think about the nature of our deliverance, what we think about the nature of our salvation, what we think about the nature of grace when we perse- and you know this to be true you know this to be true if you've been a christian uh, any length of time at all and you know when 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 you have given yourself over to a particular sin you've indulged your flesh or you've tolerated even what you know Jerry Bridges called one time those those acceptable sins you know that changes your thinking it warps your thinking about your brothers and sisters doesn't it it changes your thinking about who God is, his fundamental attributes. This man, we find in the iron cage, it's not that he cannot repent, he will not. He is so convinced himself that his standing with God depends upon his righteousness. Now he's in despair because his, his, his sins testify against him. His own, his own previous thoughts are testifying against him, tormenting him. He is convinced that he's been denied repentance. He will not believe God's word and cling to its promises. And Christian rightly exclaims, this is fearful. This is fearful. One author notes, quote, Bunyan intended not to represent this man as actually beyond the reach of mercy, but to show the dreadful consequences of departing from God and of being abandoned of him to the misery of unbelief and despair. There is, in fact, reason to believe that this man is not yet beyond the reach of God's mercy, although he remains in bondage to despair. He gives four reasons. I think these are helpful. Four reasons that, that we can see here that this, is, this man is not beyond the reach of God's grace. One, the man shows a concern for the condition of his soul. He's generally concerned about this. He's, he's, his soul is grieved that he's treated Christ and his work with such disdain. But secondly, he, he finds no pleasure in those former sins. He said it's like, it's like a worm that, that night bites and gnaws at him, like a burning worm. Said, these, these sins don't entice me anymore. Thirdly, he's not yet totally lost. I mean, he's not yet been cast into hell. He still has breath and life. He still lives. And in fact, where does he live? In the house of the interpreter. He is not beyond the reach of God's grace. And finally, He has his eyes fixed on eternity. He's no longer enamored with with his temporal lusts and temporal pleasures and profits. His soul has been awakened to the very consequences of his idolatry. But ultimately, like Israel, this man's idolatry has changed how he thinks and how he reasons about God. So not only does idolatry always and every time invoke the just wrath of God, but saints, when we give ourselves to idolatry of any kind, it changes how we think about God. It perverts what we know to be true and changes us. We see, of course, in, in dramatic displays of this in Romans 1, in Ephesians 2 and 3, this picture of the darkness of the Gentile mind, those who are without light at all, and their minds are displayed to us, described to us as darkness. Paul says in, in Romans 1 that, that God has, because of their idolatry, because their refusal to submit themselves to what they can even see in nature to be true of God. And because they've suppressed the truth of God, the, 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 the truth that is plain, they've suppressed that in unrighteousness, therefore God has handed them over. He's delivered them over to a debased mind. Well, even those who are blood-bought sons and daughters of the king can still have our minds darkened. Not like the Gentile. That's not a total darkness. It's not a darkness that's unescapable. But it's a darkness nonetheless. It's a perversion of of God's true revelation of himself to us. This is a picture here of Israel as a lost son who has so forgotten what his father's house is really like. He has so forgotten the goodness and the kindness and the mercy of his God, of his father. The man in the iron cage testified of himself, for the lusts, pleasures, and profits of this world, and the enjoyment of which I did promise myself much delight. But now those very objects of his worship had changed him had warped his thinking so that he forgot God's true nature. Now, it was not the case that, that God prevented his repentance. That's not the case. But because of his idolatry and sin, he had forgotten God's merciful and gracious character. Now, notice something important here. We see this in, in the Judges 10 narrative. We also see this illustrated in the man in the iron cage, repentance is a condition of God's repentance. But listen carefully repentance is not the cause of God's compassion and mercy. See, sometimes we think we've got to earn that. We've got to repent hard enough in order to earn God's favor or put ourselves back in gracious standing with Him. That's pagan thinking. It's pagan thinking. See, in their worship of the gods of their neighbors, Israel's thinking about God had changed such that they thought we have to come to God like we would come to Baal or the Sidonian God or the Amorite God and offer him something in order to be in his good stead. That is not the God of the Bible. The man in the iron cage had forgotten that. God's lost son Israel had forgotten that and long before that Israel's frequently, their frequent idolatry had caused this sort of ongoing case of spiritual amnesia and they had forgotten what the prophet joel would later remind the people of israel because this this cycle doesn't end with judges it continues on and on and on and listen how joel describes this in joel chapter 2 verse 12 yet even now declares yahweh return to me with all your heart with fasting weeping and wailing and tear your heart and not your garments now return to yahweh your god because, or for, he is gracious and compassionate. It doesn't say return to God with fasting and weeping in order to experience a God who is gracious and compassionate. Return to Yahweh your God for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting concerning evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for Yahweh your God. Let's take note very briefly, our time is running short, of the second lost son, of Gilead's lost son. We find this in the first part of chapter 11. And we'll spend some more time with Jephthah. He's quite a character. We'll spend more time with him next week. But the beginning of the Jephthah narrative, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 11, shows us another lost son and jephthah has been disinherited the gileadites his own brothers disinherited him they disowned him but then they later come and plead with him to come and deliver us and even even jephthah says why why are you here why are you asking this did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house why have you come to me now when you are in distress this often happens, just as a side note, we've, all, we've observed this almost certainly, when people are in distress, when people are hurting, there's a leadership vacuum often, and people are desperate for someone to lead them, and they'll even take a bad leader who can promise to deliver them. How often we, have we seen this in the political world? We'll accept a scoundrel if he promises that he can bring us some relief. The Gileadites had disowned Jephthah. Both Israel and Jephthah share a common trait. They both seek to manipulate another in order to get rescued, in order to, be, to have their inheritance restored. What they want, Israel's wanting its land back and to be rid of their oppressors. Jephthah's wanting to be restored to his place of inheritance in Gilead, and both Israel and Jephthah are willing to use any means available to them, legitimate or not, in order to accomplish that goal. Jephthah proves simultaneously to be both a pitiful and a pitiable and a despicable figure. You know, the first part of this we'll see a little bit in in, in First part of chapter eleven, a little bit of he is pitied. I mean, not his fault that his father had relations with a prostitute, and he was born as an illegitimate son. It wasn't his fault. His brothers disowned him as a result of this. After dad dies, he's disinherited. I mean, he's a pitiable figure. He's also morally responsible for his actions, and we will find next week he's a despicable figure. So I'm only going to give a few brief comments here on Jephthah, and we'll we'll spend more time with him next week. But notice that Jephthah has been disinherited. In chapter 11, now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. One commentator makes this observation. He says that the literal wording of Judges 11:1, Jephthah was the son of a harlot, Gilead begat Jephthah, should be understood in this sense. Gilead had legally, Gilead was both a region but also the proper name of a man, and Gilead had legally adopted Jephthah. The verse should be translated, Jephthah was the son of a harlot, so Gilead adopted Jephthah. In order to make him a legitimate son, he adopted him. Gilead adopted his son to legitimize him since his paternity couldn't be proved. But after Gilead's death, his brothers legally annulled an adoption agreement that his father had made in his favor. After all, who knows who his father really was? See, Gilead had said, he's my son. And because the paternity, especially in the ancient world, there was no DNA test, could not be legally confirmed, Gilead adopted him. But the son said, we're going to reverse that decree of adoption. Now, isn't this the same theme, in a sense, that we, find, we saw in chapter 10? Israel, because of her harlotry, was now lost and pleading with Yahweh to be restored, to come back. Both Jephthah and Israel are seeking to regain their lost inheritance. Or as as George Schwab puts it, both are gaining the land together. Jephthah is personally experiencing what Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Gad are experiencing, being disinherited and then restored. It's another lost son. And that really shapes our thinking as we look next week at Jephthah and his actions. We We need to understand this is a lost son in every sense of the word. The whole story of Israel and Jephthah is really our story too, isn't it? The Scriptures teach to us, show us very clearly that none of us are righteous. All of us were born in rebellion against God, against our Creator, against our Lord. All of us are born separated from God and away from His gracious covenant. If you belong to Christ, it's because the Spirit of God has opened your eyes to see that lostness, to, to comprehend your waywardness, until that point when Christ sought you and delivered you. I mean, that's, that's the gospel in a nutshell. That we were all born as lost sons, as lost daughters. And that God sent his own son to seek and to save the lost. That's Paul's message to the Ephesian church. In Ephesians 2, he says, remember, remember, saints, that at one time you were without Christ. Remember that you were one time alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the dramatic theme that runs through chapters 10 and 11 in the book of Judges, this theme of lostness and recovery. The Jephthah story reminds us that God alone saves, and he saves based on his purposes and by his means He has never, ever, ever rescued even one sinner because he saw in that person even some tiny reason to deserve it. Not once. In fact, the Apostle Paul says it's because of God's grace that you're in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 26, writing to a a church that that was tempted in many of these ways to, to exaltation of themselves and to be enamored with those who had Lofty pedigrees and and, and high education and and good, smooth words and brilliant oratory. And Paul says, consider your own calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, we see in, in Jephthah sort of these, these foreshadowings of God using someone who is despised and rejected by the world to save his people. It makes us long for one who is a good man, a righteous man, a sinless man, but also one who is an outcast, one who is the least likely hero. If you ever consider Israel's rebellion and, and forsaking God, and, and then think about that in, in respect to or in light of the illustration from Bunyan's tragic figure, the man in the iron cage, and his his despair. If you're here today, then it's safe to assume that that you have some knowledge of God's Word. You've heard at least this, this far this morning. It's safe to assume you have some knowledge, some experience with the things of God. So if you've never cast yourself upon the mercy of God revealed in Christ Jesus... If if you will believe today in his infinite mercy towards sinners that he displayed in the sacrifice of his own son, he's promised to save you. He's promised to rescue you. Do not think that you can continue in unbelief. Do not think you can continue to play around with the idols of this world and have no consequence for that. Do not presume that you can just come to God whenever you feel some sort of distress and misery, call out to him, make some show of being near to him and trust that he will will always hear you. God may choose to say, as he said to to his son in Israel, would you go and see how the other gods can do? I've given you a perfect salvation, you've forsaken me. Those gods that you worship who cannot see, who cannot speak, who cannot act, who have no power, who cannot even move themselves, who have to be made with human hands, go see if they can rescue you. Go see how that works. It is an unbreakable law that you become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. Do not think in your heart, that you are in control and that you can return to God at just whatever point you think you need Him and then return to Him on your own terms. If you are one of those who have tasted the things of God, perhaps even professing faith in Christ, but now you've forsaken Him, do not think too highly of yourself. Do not think that your deconstruction, as it's popularly called now, or your critical thinking, or whatever you might fancy yourself to call that, do not think that you can continue in idolatry and rebellion and not have it change you. and Not have it corrupt your thinking about yourself, about the world around you, and most significantly, about the nature of God himself. Do not think you can continue playing with the idols of this world and not have it change you. Do not think in your heart that you are in control and that you can return to God at whatever point you think and that you can just return whenever you feel like it on your own terms. If you treat that God if you treat God that way, if you treat him as a pagan God, he may respond to you like a pagan God, which is to say, there's no response at all. It's nothing but silence. God said to his own people, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. But on the other side, we should never think that our sins have taken us too far away. We should not think that our our sins have, have gone to such a degree that God is unable to save, that God is unable to rescue. If you will humble yourself before God, he will not cast you out. But again, Paul writing in his second letter to the Corinthian church, he says, so then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As God is pleading through us, we beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the message today. Brothers and sisters, if you have been dabbling in the idols of this world, whatever those are, whether that's the, the pleasures and profits of this world or or the economics of this world or, or the health and wealth and all these kinds of things. Even even good things we can make idols of them, can't we? Can't we make idols of our marriages, of our homes, of the jobs that God has given and the good gifts that those are? Can't we make idols of our children? Our grandchildren? We're capable of making anything into an idol. and If we pursue them as idols, it will change us. It will warp our way of thinking. Paul's called Paul continues, he said, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And working together with him, we also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Paul goes on, behold, now is the acceptable time. Today, today is the day of salvation. Will you hear that? If you're a son, a daughter of God, and you've wondered, will you return to him, believing that your return is based on his love and grace towards you, not based on your your ability to, to show him enough repentance to win him back? To the rebellious son who's lost his way. The Lord says, come home. To the rebellious daughter who's given herself to harlotry, the Lord says to you, come home, my child. To the stranger who's never known God, today he says to you, come and follow me. give ourselves to the Lord in prayer. Father, will you you bless us through the preaching of your word that you would be so pleased to work this word in us by your Spirit's power for those who are in Christ to perfect us to search out the hidden idols of our hearts, some we are fully aware of and we have yet to forsake. There are other idols, Lord, surely we know are, are hidden to us. We, we do not realize that we are worshiping and giving ourselves immoderately to the things of this world, even the good gifts that you've given to us. Will you help us, Holy Spirit, to see ourselves clearly and by your loving grace to turn away from those things and seek a true and undefiled worship of the true and living God. And that a sinner here today who has never, never sought refuge in you, who's never sought to forsake the idols of this world, will you be gracious today to make today the day of salvation? May today be the day, the acceptable time, when they listen to you, when they hear the voice of King Jesus, command them to believe upon him and to turn from the idols of their hearts that you might save them, deliver them, and preserve them to the day of glory. Holy Spirit, will you help to press these things in upon us that we not walk away today being hearers only of the word but, but to be doers of it, that we not, be not like the man who looks at himself in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he has seen. Lord, will you be gracious to us, help us to remember even the ugly image that we might see and to flee to Christ for rescue, for deliverance, Cleansing and healing. We ask this in His holy and precious name. Amen.